Hello, welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. What's up, people? How we doing? How's the quarantine life? And people are probably going stir crazy about now. But I'm not, though. I'm liking it. I'm actually liking yeah, quarantine you, life. It's not so you bad. You Snapchat me all day from your farm. You know, you got you got the right setup to be to be living yeah. in quarantine. Yeah, You're I out don't on feel the farm closed in. Yeah, I feel like actually, this is weird, but I think this this quarantine has actually given me a springboard into the life that I was kind of working for because I can't work, so I've kind of had to plan for this sort of life. You know, like a life right. where I'm kind of cultivating our own food and working for myself, and mm-hmm. and it's actually been quite the springboard. And then. You know, we're supposed to get these stimulus checks. I'm like, hey, this is actually working in my favor. <laughs> like, this is, I'm sorry. That is so insensitive. There's a, this is a lot of horrible things going on, but I'm just saying. I think yeah, a lot of people what, are getting a lot of shit done at home. Yeah, and we're <laughs> all, I mean, all we can do is live our own lives, you know. It's like, uh, I feel bad at times because the situation I'm in at work is like half my department is at home getting paid. People that yeah. have less seniority than me. Right. And I'm very, very frustrated by it. I don't understand why I'm here and they're not and they're getting paid mm-hmm. and I'm doing all this bull crap and they're riding my ass just like normal. Right. Um, but at the same time, people say, well, like you're lucky to have a job. And it's like, yeah, but I got to live my experience. I've been here 14 years. I feel like I've earned the right to be at home. If other people have been here for one or two years, have earned the right to be home. What the hell is going on here? Like, why are we not splitting the load? What's, you know, they, they could do just because, yeah, I could things could be worse. That doesn't mean that you can't, things couldn't be better too. You know what I mean? Like management could have done a better job and all that. It's a long story, but. Right. Dude, I'm sure you know, a lot of people can agree with your work frustrations because like you oh, said, the, half of Americans are still working. Everybody, yeah. there's the half of us are still like, still got to get shit done. Like day mm-hmm. in, day out. Monday is still Monday. You yeah. know what I mean? For a lot of people. Yeah. And, and working in the field, good luck finding a bathroom. Like it's a nightmare. There's a lot of things <laughs> that really suck. Like stores you know, are closed. I'm man. happy to be, yeah. be still working and I'm happy to be getting paid, you know, but like I said, but you know, it's, there's still definitely things that are frustrating about it. My wife's yes. out of work right now too. You know, she, her office closed down. So right. yeah, things are interesting, but yeah, it definitely seems like for you, this kind of did, I, I, I get that. I got that sense that this kind of gave you that nudge toward the life you wanted, where you it wanted did. to, you wanted to podcast for a living slash live on a homestead type of thing where living exactly. a, a life of modest means and not answering to anybody and having your own schedule and all that. And I respect that. And I think that's cool that this kind of gave you that little nudge that you needed. It, it just, it, it really uh, excites my heart that you know me so well. <laughs> I, I, you have a really good grasp on on who I am. We, we're every day. I think we're becoming better friends. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard that expression, but I like it. It excites my heart. <laughs> it excites my heart. Man. That's a T-shirt. It, it may be th- this bang energy drink I just drank, but right. I mean, I'm pretty sure that's, that's exciting what it is. your heart, all right. Yeah, bang energy. <laughs> you know what else excites the heart? Moida. Moida, it does, man. Shall we dive in? Rating. Shall we dive into another uh, lesser-known, obscure serial killer? Those are my favorites. I think those are like fan favorites, ones where it's like, I've never even heard of this guy. How have I never heard of this serial killer? I call him Ed Kemper Light. Uh, he's, there's so many Perfect. similarities. <laughs> so many similarities to Ed Kemper. He's a bigger yeah. guy. He's not quite Ed Kemper big. You know, Ed Kemper was, what, like 6'9 or something? Yeah, but he was a This giant. guy was over 6 foot, 240 pounds. Well, once he was behind bars, he actually, you know what? He was pretty skinny during his killing days yeah but he, he was like 165 170 i mean that's pretty light especially if you're yeah. over six foot that's pretty yeah light. you know what he, he's the ed kemper would have ate him for lunch really when you think about it but he oh, he sure. has the same look and the same 
the same cadence to the way he talks. Once he was arrested, he really went into analyzing his own psychology, which I found quite interesting. And that's very Ed Kemperish. Mm-hmm. Um, he did a lot of interviews and the, the book that I used for this dives into a lot of his psychology because a woman uh, became kind of friends with him um, and was friends with like corresponding with him for a decade right? Uh, while he was on death row. So it, you, it's a pretty fascinating case. And you believe this is all due to his narcissism, not the actually wanting to know what his issue is. Yeah, right? I don't. I think almost everything he did was calculated, and he was also he was also hot and cold. Like he was, he contradicted himself constantly. It seemed like whatever yeah. benefited him, he would say in the moment. You know, it was just. I will get into take. it. But. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that in my mind as we're going through the story now because I didn't have that take beforehand. So I'm gonna yeah. keep that in into consideration. All right, cool. Let's start this thing off, dude. Let's get into it. For some reason with me, sexuality and violence have fused together. Sexuality, sexuality, violence, 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 fused together. together. When I attacked, I don't believe I was in control. I don't think I could have stopped. Um, reason I say that is because there's a very clear point to me after she was dead when I was feeling, well, I didn't really feel anything. I mean, I knew what was going on and, and I saw what was going on, but it was more like watching an old film that we used to see as kids in the high school. You know, I mean, in elementary school, they've been played so many times, they're all spliced, and, and they'd be going along and then jump. I, I'm not saying I wasn't there, it was a multi-personality or any of that kind of crap. I was there and I did it, but I wasn't 100% there. There's souls in society, they're broken inside, you see, worse than They seem to like the empathy, like the sociopath you see, not like you. Maybe they should be quarantined. (laughs) And after they were dead, I remember the very first feeling I had was my heart was really pounding. I mean, it was really pounding. The second feeling I had was that my hands hurt from where I had strangled them. I always manly strangled them. And then the third feeling I had was fear. Scary how normal they look Like a character straight from a book They seem familiar to me That scares the shit out of me When I was younger, I started out with fantasies that were very, well, they weren't violent. They were, I, I don't know how normal they were, but they, they weren't violent type fantasies. Mainly, I guess, the earliest ones I can remember was I would kidnap women and take them to my safe place. And then they would fall in love with me and not want to leave. James Bond, Superman type, type things. Um, then when I got to college, somehow they started the degrading, uh, going into more violent fantasies, uh, a 
That's when my rape fantasies first started, was when I was in college. I started following women home, and I would get a thrill by them knowing that I was following them, that they would be scared, and you know that, that gave me a thrill. And then it got to the point where I actually raped someone at Cornell, and then uh, the next person I actually raped and killed. case this week is a guy by the name of Michael Bruce Ross. Most likely you've never heard of him. He got the name of the roadside strangler on a whim. Some reporter in a supposedly some reporter in a diner kind of just came up with this shit. Mm-hmm. It well, he did strangle someone roadside to be fair. Several people roadside, <laughs> really. I mean, it does fit. It, it does fits, fit. It right? just doesn't really fully encapsulate him. It kind of it's just it's it not sounds- I don't know, it's not quite enough. It sounds too animalistic for him. He's way more calculated. Than yeah, that, and I also think. I think you could have played on the, the chicken farmer thing. You could have used something like that. You know, it could have gone with the Eggman or the the chicken chicken farm mm-hmm. murderer. Something I don't know. That's not yeah. great, but the Eggman. The, you can work, we can work with yeah. chickens. He, he grew up on a chicken farm. Actually, right. during a lot of his killing, he was still working on a chicken farm that was uh, owned by his family. So, yeah, but I mean, a lot of people kill chickens, and they end up killing people. True, you know. No, not I'm not saying not, that he not, killed people because he killed chickens. I'm just yeah, saying that just occurred to as me. far as his name. That just occurred to me. I, I guess I just took offense to that. I guess I just thought you were making that assumption so early in this program right. about murderers. <laughs> <laughs> that, you know what? The links were made when you the studied link. this case. A lot of people tried to say because he had to snap chicken necks, and all of a sudden he was just going to start killing women. Nope, nope. Don't think that's how it works. It's not that simple. I think it had a lot more to do with the mommy issues, and that's another Kemper similarity there. A lot of and, mommy issues in this one. Yeah, and the horrible childhood as well, uh, as far as... Yes. Uh, the possible abuse, whatnot. Also, intelligence. Very intelligent guy. He was a, a, a grad of Cornell and actually a student uh, assistant. Uh, so he's one of those dudes that grades your papers. One of the, the teachers kiss asses. Oh God, one of those guys. Yeah, he would be yeah. one of those guys. <laughs> he was totally. He was a kiss ass all through high school, all through high school, middle school, and yeah, even I, into college. I get that. School is so fun because I'm good at it. Fuck off. Right. 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 Get this guy out of here. Oh. <laughs> 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 uh. Uh, All right, so let's dive into it. The book that I used to study this case was called Man in the Monster by Martha Elliott. Very good book. It's available in audible form. Uh, It's. I'll I'll give you some excerpts. Excerpts from it. Uh, Please do some quotes from the book just to get you a little bit of sense of where this book came from. Uh, This is a quote from Martha: "No one in her right mind invites a serial killer into her life. Who would want to know that kind of evil?" For more than a decade, this is exactly what I did. I never imagined that I would consider someone like Michael Ross, a convicted serial rapist and murderer, a close friend. But from 1995 until his death by lethal injection in 2005, that is exactly what I did and what he became to me. Wow. That's what this book is about, is her relationship with Michael Bruce Ross. And also it dives into, obviously, not just her 
her relationship with him, but also the different deeds that he did, the heinous crimes and uh, his time behind bars. He was on death row for 18 years, I believe. And so there's a lot of time where he was sitting around writing. He actually was a successful writer behind bars. He was making money as a uh, selling like uh, articles to different magazines and whatnot. A lot of them were religious ones. He was selling like anti, uh, anti death penalty articles for religious means and all this stuff. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. I didn't know he was, he was selling the articles. I know he was writing a lot in prison. And yeah. He had quite he was the making, setup on death row. He was making money uh, that he could use for commissary and stuff uh, to buy things in, from behind bars by selling articles. Do you think those guys that make money? in prison can then in turn pay off guards for more flexibility, you know what I mean? More goods and stuff like that. You think oh, that works? So that's probably right. how he um, got extra sales and stuff. Cause I saw one interview where he was, he had actual, he had like a cell for storage and then he had his mm-hmm. own cell. Yeah. All his books were in a cell adjacent to his. I, I mean, his cell looked like a living room with bars in front of it. I yeah. mean, it, it really didn't look that bad to <laughs> me. You know what? Actually, his his cell for being on death row, though. I Way mean, maybe because it was, yeah. Well, no, because it was maybe because it was the nineties. Like, but I've seen some um, more recent vi- footage of death row, and their cells are way bigger than what he had. Like, really? Yeah, I was watching some just random crap on YouTube. It was one of those uh, National Geographic specials on death row inmates or whatever. Yeah. I mean, they had a, like a probably six, 700 square foot fucking cell with everything you could imagine. Like it looked like a dream. Like you don't have to deal with other inmates. You know, you, these people had the, the setup, you know, except for the part where your death is scheduled. But a lot of times those get yeah. put off and put off and put off as we've seen right. with Randy Kraft. It's not as big so, of an inconvenience as you might think. <laughs> right. I think I would take death row for 20 years as opposed to being gen pop, you know, and dealing with worried about getting shanked every day and dealing with like a, a six by nine cell or whatever they have. I see what you're saying. Yeah, you do a smaller crime and you get punished more, but for a lesser time. Yeah, and then one I thing that they, sucked about his cell, though, particularly, was that he was literally the last cell before the 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 death room. <laughs> Essentially, he could like oh. turn his head out of his cell and see where he was going to die. That's kind of creepy. Oh, good though. I mean, good. Yeah, he did some horrible here's things. Another, man. Yeah, here's another quote from the book from uh, the author Martha Elliott. Michael Ross was my partner in this investigation. He opened up his life to me so that together we might tell his story. I believe he worked with me for so many years as kind of an atonement for what he had done. His life is full of contradictions. He was a moral man who committed heinously immoral acts, a man capable of great bravery who was also cowardly, an intelligent man whose stubbornness defied reason. All of these facets dwelled within this man. To the best of my ability, I have told his story. So this uh, this is her book. Um, she became intrigued by Michael Ross's case in the summer of 1995 during the during her tenure as editor-in-chief and publisher of the Connecticut Law Tribune when the Connecticut Supreme Court overturned the six death sentences that had been given in, to him in 1987. He began lobbying to accept a death sentence to spare the families of his victims the pain of going through another trial. She was puzzled by this, uh, by his unusual offer, and kind of that's how she began her plight to reach out to him and, and kind of spur a relationship. She wanted to find out more about this man who had been sentenced to death, was about to have that revoked, and then basically right. took it upon himself to take the sentence on again. There's more to that that we find out through the book, but that's also what interested... As did we, right? Yeah, <laughs> we found that's that what interested me in this case. I would, yeah. I'd never heard of such a thing, really, you know, with all the different cases we've studied. I'm sure it's happened. Someone will probably send us like, oh, this guy, this guy. But 
I found that interesting that for the reason of sparing the victims' families, he he seemed to be one of the more remorseful serial killers that we'd ever studied for someone who did such heinous acts. But when I really dove into it and learned more about him, because there's so much into his mentality in this, because she's she's talking to him and you get a lot of the interactions back and forth throughout this whole thing of their 10-year relationship. Right. You find out it is all selfish reasons in the end. Right. I th- um, honestly, I think it's because he'll never, never fulfill that sexual satisfaction ever again yeah. being where he is. And he's like, well, I might as well die then. I mean, yeah. And he, and he really did hate himself. I, I believe yeah. I truly did believe he had, uh, he had actually come very close to suicide several times early on in his crime spree. Um, he, he had gone to the point of even standing on a, the, the edge of a bridge after his first rape, I believe. And yeah, because jumped. he knew he wasn't going to stop from the very beginning. He knew yeah. he wasn't going to stop. Which, I mean, and he he wanted uh, he wanted to get off on insanity. He truly believed that he couldn't help himself. That he had he had sexual sadism. That he couldn't really be satisfied sexually without inflicting pain or killing. Mm-hmm. Killing was really the part that got him off the most. But at the right. same time, I feel like there's a lot of people with inflictions or afflictions mentally and whatnot that keep that shit. They don't act on it. You know what I mean? They like, don't. There's act been on plenty it. of times right. where I've wanted to go and hit someone that pissed me off, and I don't do it because I'm an adult. Right. You know, that's the difference. It's like, if you know you have these issues, you need to go talk to somebody. You but need to get issue, on medication. You need to do something. But I think the issue lies not in, a, not in an angry outburst, but more of a sexual outburst. I think that's yep. much harder for especially men to control. That's what, I think that's ultimately why we have way more men serial killers is mm-hmm. because most of them are sexually motivated and men are the ones who would go that far for a sexual pleasure. Yeah, I mean, and it's just another thing that made this case so interesting is that when when he was when he was um, on death row, they put him on female hormones. They ah, we'll talk about it later, but they yes. put him on therapy that lowered his testosterone to like almost now, female levels, like to where now, he, and it actually killed all of his sexual urges. And he was truly, he said he was truly happy. Like it, it cleared his mind, and for once, he could actually not be thinking about rape at all times. Essentially, right. You now know, that, sex, was that does. per his request or was that? Yeah, that's what, what he, he wanted. He, that's he, what I thought. He, he had to have it. And actually they took it off, took him off of it at one point because they didn't want to pay for it anymore, the state. Oh. And he was suicidal again because those urges came back. That's all he could think about. And behind bars, when you're sitting there all day, it was even worse than ever before because what else does he have to do other than sit there? And he would relive the murders in his head over and over again and masturbate. And he was begging them to put him back on this therapy. So they, that that's one notch in the side of, I guess, like, he didn't want to be that way. I, I think I truly believe that about him. He didn't want to be like that. I he agree just, with he, that. The urges were so overwhelming to him right. that for whatever, he was too weak to fight it off. You know, that's the problem. Right. But I don't think that remorse was the main motivator in any of his noble actions throughout this case. No. The few no, noble he, I, actions that he took, I don't think remorse was any, and he says that himself. He talks about yeah. how he didn't feel anything, and he knows no, that's not he, right. Yeah. He wanted it. He, he thought it was odd that he felt nothing for those people, that they were like faceless women to him, that they were just a name on a sheet of paper. That was it. Right. You know. Um, he couldn't yeah, even it, remember them during the murders. No. You know, they, were just, even, they were just an object to fulfill the fantasy. That's all they were to him. They weren't people. That blows my mind, dude. It's just the action. It's just the taking you, of a life. It's not even who she is or what she looked like. And you know, when you listen to him, he has, there's interviews of him on YouTube and it is so cold, so chilling hearing him talk about it in such a matter of fact way. And even giggling at times that are so inappropriate when recounting murders of young women, like teenage girls 
rape yeah. and murder, like just kind of giggling. Like the one pulled a knife on me, you know, and I almost drove off the road because I was so surprised. <laughs> like literally like laughing yeah. like that about that. And then, yeah, and then I raped and killed her. And so it's like, what the fuck? Yeah, like you said, Kemper Light, dude. Not as creepy as Kemper, but just every bit as matter of fact. Yes. Every bit. Yeah. So now that we've given you the whole the whole vibe to this guy, let's dive into his, his backstory and kind of see what created this monster because he really did have it, – it was really just mommy issues more than anything. I wouldn't say he had a – compared to a lot of other cases we've done, the, the childhood was pretty mild. It was just really – Poor mom, like poor upbringing from the mother. The mother figure was really kind of she just didn't want to be problematic there, here. She just didn't want to be there. She was in she a place. She didn't want to be there, and she took life. out all of her frustration on yes. her oldest son, which was Michael Ross. That's right. She was in a place in a within a family that she did not want to be. She just didn't mm-hmm. want to be there. And you're right. And yeah. she probably saw everything she hated about herself and her husband in this child, and she just she took it out on him. Yep. So Michael Bruce Ross was born on July 26th, 1959. Do you want to look up the July 26th birthdays for me real quick? I, I yeah. totally blanked on that on the crime line. All right. July 26th, 1959 to Dan, Daniel and Pat Ross in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Connecticut, not big on serial killers. There's only no, not. this guy and, and one other big name guy who I looked up. I, he's blanking, blanking on his name right now. But not much coming out of Connecticut, especially the northeast corner. Very, it's known as the quiet corner of Connecticut, where it's just kind of, uh, you know, family, family ties and uh, farmland, and very, very low crime rate, and just kind of like the ideal place to raise families and whatnot. You know, very, very uh, family friendly, right? Place, all right, especially during this time. Well, I got some birthdays. All right, let's hear them. We got some, we got some superstars, dude. We got Sandra oh, Bullock. Ooh, all right. Kate Beckinsale. Okay. Uh, Jason Statham. All right, mate. Mick Jagger. (laughs) Mick Mick Jagger. Oh, damn. Definitely superstar studded class here. Oh, my God. And then Michael Bruce Ross. He fits right in, doesn't he? Yep. And then uh, you also got Kevin Spacey, who, you know. Oh, boy. Another another great rapist, right? We won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just skim right past that one. Oh, already? <clears throat> it sucks too because that show was so good. Um, House of Cards. Oh man, he's a great actor. He really, he really had to blow it, didn't he? Shit. Yeah. You know had, what? He, he it's, is, it, it. is it is it coincidence that he always plays a piece of shit in every movie? Though I don't think so. I don't think he's so. He's just so naturally good at it. Some people are so good at being assholes in movies that you're like, there's no way you're not an asshole in real life. Mm. You're just too good at this. You're right, dude. You're right. A you know, lot, like I. What's her, what's her name? Catherine Heigl. Like she's she's kind of always a biatch and everything. And then it turns out <laughs> from what you hear, she's a biatch. Like behind the scenes, she's a pain in the ass. <laughs> Dude, I mean, you play the same character over and over again. And well, and you're picked for roles for a certain reason, right? right. You're picked for them for a certain reason. You kind of already embody that character. You know, like Ray Liotta. <laughs> Ray Liotta comes to mind as someone who's just always a hot. He always plays a hothead because the dude's probably losing his shit in traffic every day. Or like throwing his coffee at Starbucks. Like, I don't know. I just picture him getting angry at everything and it's just normal life. Right. <laughs> those Chantix commercials, man. He looked rough in those. <laughs> he he looked crap. pissed to be there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> How much Fucking money does Chantix. Chantix have? That's all I could think. <laughs> oh, my right. God. Yep. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, yeah, he was raised. So, as we mentioned, he was born July 26, 1959 in Brooklyn, Connecticut. 
the northeast corner farmland. He was he was born on a uh, chicken farm, and that would kind of be become his his uh, life's passion. Really, I mean, he went to school and everything, but he always went back to the chicken farm. That's that's where his roots were. That's what yeah. his father was proud of him for taking on the family uh, trade, and uh, so he was raised raised as the oldest child and had two younger sisters and a younger brother. His father, Dan Ross, uh, was the chicken farmer that we mentioned. Man, a lot of stuff about uh, chicken farming in this book that I found pretty interesting. Just the just the levels of how many chickens, like you don't even really comprehend. Because as someone who's who owns chickens and you own chickens, right? It's it's it, it's just different when you're talking like a hundred thousand chickens. Like oh my god, literally yes. the first thing they would do in the morning was go out there and like they'd have to clear out the dead chickens because just like hundreds would die overnight because there's just oh, so yeah. many. So like yeah. that was a job he had to do from a young Trampled age is like go in and clear out like 200 dead chickens, get those out. And then they'd have to kill the ones as we kind of briefly touched on a minute ago. He he learned to have to kill the weak ones, basically the ones that would never lay. They would have to pinpoint those ones, the ones that kind of looked sick and weak and right. just kind of nip, the, nip them in the bud and kill them before they died naturally. Right. And there was different methods to that um, that he would learn. And, Chicken uh, farm just made sense, man. Yeah. It was a system. You know, yep. nothing went to waste. <laughs> yep. Michael was raised Christian Catholic and maintained some of the principles even after committing heinous acts. There were certain things he talked about with Martha um, mm-hmm. that shocked her, like his coldness with certain things. And then like, he would say like, you know, I just felt wrong hitting a woman. And it's like, you raped and killed him. She was just blown away by some of the things he would say. You know, the things that he felt bad about as opposed to the things he didn't feel bad about. Right. Were just, they, they made no sense. But it, became, yeah, very it went back to the- Christian upbringing. Oh well, of he thought course. He, he had this image of himself as like this this wholesome corn fed uh, farmer boy, Christian boy, you know. But he was out raping and killing people. Right. Well, as long as he's not blaspheming, he can always be forgiven. You know? Exactly. You rape and kill, and you know God will forgive you. It's fine. Yeah. So his parents had married after uh, his mom had discovered she was pregnant, and she was still in high school at the time. Their marriage would end up not being a happy one. Part of it was due to the fact that this unplanned pregnancy at such a young age forced uh, his father to propose and they got married early on just because of that's what you did at that time, you know, right. in the early 60s, late 50s when you get yeah. pregnant. What kind of man um, are you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, his mother, Pat, hated the farm life and family life, essentially. She blamed Michael, the oldest son and uh, protagonist in this story for ruining her 20s. Basically, she was. She always looked at him as this burden that had ruined her life. If she hadn't had him, things could have been different. She could have moved to New York City or whatever. Instead, she's stuck on this chicken farm in Connecticut with a family she doesn't want. And uh, she damn, that's harsh. Constantly let Michael know about this and was constantly verbally abusive, physically abusive. The whole, all the children really would learn to be afraid of her and learn little ways around skirting around her. Uh, bouts of anger she would mm-hmm. just blow up in a second over nothing like they, they're kind of always walking on eggshells they learn to like send one kid down in the morning and kind of get a feel for how things were that morning and yeah. like they'd like be shaking like walking a, like a, a dish to the sink and hope not to screw something up or else she'd lose her mind on them I think that uh, type of vibe <laughs> not to that extent but I think most kids do that they kind of have right. that. It's usually the younger one, you know. It's like, hey, go go ask mom and dad if we can, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, or go oh, yeah. see you, if we you, could uh, get a cookie or get. Something. You use the baby of the family as means yeah. to get what you want because they, right. they have a more of a soft spot for them. That's right. My kids do that. 
they send my youngest yeah. daughter to ask for everything. <laughs> yeah, I how did. could you say no to her? She's too I cute. Know, right. Um, after having four children and two abortions, she ran off to North Carolina to be with another man. Hey, there's hey. a North Carolina reference, no Vegas yeah. reference, but in every case, there's either Vegas or North Carolina, <laughs> Dude, it seems, it isn't po- there? They pop up too isn't much. That weird? <laughs> isn't that weird? We don't <laughs> do this intentionally, I swear. Yeah, I know. It's weird. <clears throat> Um, when his mother returned home, she was institutionalized. This is kind of those days where a husband could kind of just bring his, if he, if his wife was was uh, giving him a hard time, he could just go drop her off at an institution, as we talked about with Nellie Bly and all that. Yep. This was still kind of going on. Um, the admitting doctor wrote that Pat talked of suicide and beating and striking her children. Um, then she would be, she would be uh, let go. They 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 did an uh, they analyzed her and and pretty much just found that she was. She had anger issues and whatnot, and nothing really to be done about it. So no um, true psychological child, issues, or or what do you think? Or you think it was just misdiagnosed? Do you think she passed anything on to Michael? Maybe uh, narcissism. Right. I don't think she had anything truly wrong with her. She just was... She, her life didn't go the way she wanted, and she was bitter about it, and she took it out okay. on people around her. I don't think she had any mental issues. Okay. Fair enough. And I think he he kind of picked up on on these tendencies to to think think about uh, himself all the time. That's what she did, and then she would get mad at other people that things didn't turn out the way she wanted. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Your kids are watching you, even if they mm-hmm. even if they have disdain for you, like it appeared that Michael did. He was still watching and picking oh. up how to be an adult from her. Well, he he disdained her, but at the same time, he always needed her acceptance all the way up into his adulthood. Like yeah. it, it, there was there was that weird relationship. Like the Ed Gein thing almost, like a weird obsession she had with him and he had with her. She had this weird jealousy if he was with other girls. Like if he, she didn't want him to date, even though all she did was ridicule him and beat him down. She also didn't want him getting the attention of other women. It was a very strange relationship she had with her oldest son. Interesting. Yeah. As a child, Michael, Michael used to fantasize about taking women to a safe place, quote unquote, where he could keep them captive and they would worship him. Eventually, he would win them over by holding them captive. Yeah, because um, that's how that works. That, yeah, the Munchausen <laughs> by proxy thing or whatever. Or no, that's that's not Munchausen. What's the one where you uh, where you hold someone captive and then they 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 grow to love you or whatever? There's a, there's a whole syndrome to that. Stockholm syndrome. Stockholm syndrome. There yeah. you go. Good job. Yeah. Um, a few of his family friends mentioned that uh, his teenage uncle had molested Michael. They, they speculated that Michael may have been molested by his, his uh, teenage uncle that babysat them all the time. The uncle had ended up uh, committing suicide. He wandered off with a gun um, on the farm and shot himself and wrote a letter saying that it was because he was gay and that it was in eastern, you know, northeast Connecticut during the 60s and 70s, it was not accepted to be gay. Right. And uh, there was speculation because of what Michael turned out to be that he had been molested by this guy, but there's no evidence of it. Oh, so that has to wow. be mentioned. That is some strong speculation for no evidence. I know, right? Because it seems that like people just connected dots. It's all. Yeah. And also, I think when people turn out as bad as Michael Ross did, they mm-hmm. they have to find something, right? They got to be like, yeah. oh, something really, really fucked him up. He can't just be a kid who grew up on a farm and his mama smacked him every once in a while and he grew up to kill people. It also that. might be some prejudice in regards to the gay thing. The fact that he it could be he killed himself and he was gay and he couldn't he couldn't he, he no longer had the ability to say I had nothing to do with that. But they, they because he was gay, all of a sudden he was a molester too. Like yeah, I don't find that I don't find that fair. Yeah, yeah with no other evidence. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, after his m- uncle had committed suicide, the job of killing sick and mal- uh, malformed chickens became eight-year-old Michael's responsibility, and he was taught by his his father how to do this. There was different ways that the book described. One one way was to like, I mean, if you're sensitive to animal abuse, you might want to tune out for a few seconds. But one way was yeah. or to vegetarian. bash their head on. Yeah, was to bash their head on a pole, which was if done correctly, I guess quick. Uh, relatively painless, just boom, done. If you do it mm-hmm. right, that's the thing. Is like you had to have, you had to learn how to use the right amount of force. Right. Um, a lot of people when fishing do the same thing. You know, you whack the fish on the head. If you do it right, they're done. Right. Um, another way was to like basically strangle the chicken or snap their neck. So he he learned different ways, and some speculate that this bleached over into his later life. You know, strangling women that he was doing it with chickens at a young age, and he learned this this kind of cold malice way of killing creatures and it uh, may have bled over into later life. Well, now doing this at such a young age, I'm sure it was very exciting for him. But I think also the fact that he was doing this with his dad, I think mm-hmm. I think that had a big impact on how he felt about it too. Because he always had, he always was very affectionate when he talked about his father and the time he spent with his father. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe that is oh, yeah. more why he over romanticized this part of his life and the chickens and all that. Yeah. And his dad was pretty cold with him all through his childhood, but he always he same with his mom, he had this need for his dad to respect him and and uh he had he had the need to be uh he wanted to be like his dad essentially and that's why I think he went back to chicken farming after college. He could have gone on and done many other things, but he went back to this farm in a small town in the middle of nowhere. Right. And people were wondering why the hell he would do that. You know, he was well, because at Cornell he, graduating. And, because you were happy and things were simple there. You yeah. Know what I mean? but and I'm your sure dad respected back, you. Yeah. Yeah. His dad wanted him to be, take over the farm and that's, you know, that, that meant a lot to him. Um, but his, and his dad was, stopped being cold with him, believe it or not, once he was on death row and he was no longer with, Michael's mother anymore. His Michael's mother, uh, Pat. She, she uh, seemingly made the father a lot colder. He had to. He had to a lot of times dole out the punishment. She would get angry with the kids, and then the father would have to come home and dole out the punishment. And so mm-hmm. he, he was very cold with his kids for a long time until he got with a new woman. He got with with Michael Ross's stepmom later on, and then he became this whole new warm person where he actually went to like Michael's trial and like showed love and all this stuff. Kind of wow. odd. Maybe just as yeah. he got older, he just realized that yeah. having a relationship with your son, what I mean, what's left of a relationship with your son is better than none. You know, I feel like parents come to that conclusion at some point in time in their lives. And I think also his, you know, Michael's father was always kind of walking on eggshells with Pat as well. Like he was always kind of like, it seemed like the whole household went with her moods. Like she could really bring everyone down in a split second. If she got angry over something, she would just take over everything. Yeah. I got that vibe as well. Yeah. Uh, Michael loved farm life and met his responsibilities while also attending high school. His mother, um, Pat had an odd relationship with, with her son as we've kind of brought up a few times. She constantly tore him down while also being extremely controlling when she this part, oof, when she found a pair of his underwear with a stain from a wet dream, wet dream, she made him wear the underwear on his head the whole next day. Very reminiscent of mm, who was rough. it? Was it Ridgeway with the the bed sheets? With the I mean, a lot of times it's the urinating in the bed, wet in the bed, and like the shame, the mother shaming their kids for that. Right. She was big on shaming um, Michael for masturbation. She she was not okay with him masturbating. She would frequently run up the stairs and try to catch him in the act. 
luckily for him, the stairs were squeaky, so he always heard her coming, <laughs> and he was able to. He was able yeah. to go ahead and squeeze one out right quick, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she wouldn't allow her oldest son to date or bring home friends. Uh, Michael Ross's sister has said that as a child, Ross took the brunt of his mother's anger. So even the other siblings admitted that uh, their mom, Pat, pretty much always took out most of her anger on him, on Michael. Well, because she, you hold the older sibling responsible, especially if they're present. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I think, I think that can be misconstrued sometimes. Because like a lot of times yeah. when I find my, my oldest daughter, she's almost a teenager, so she has nothing to do with anybody most of the time now <laughs> but mm-hmm. my my older son and my younger daughter when they're playing and they're doing something that's like like what the hell like somebody's obviously going to get hurt here or this yeah. is a terrible idea like you're going to break a window or the car or something then i always blame it on him because he's older yeah right i mean it's like she's she's so much younger than you you have to set the example and i have to wonder how much how much of that got misconstrued you know what I'm saying? Especially that, if that he was mixed quite with a bit that older. mixed with the re, that mixed with the resentment of him being the first child that kind of ruined her life. You know, it set up set out set this train in motion of yeah. ruining her 20s, and then it was just another kid after another kid. But it was Michael that if she hadn't gotten pregnant uh, with him, or if she hadn't you know gotten pregnant with uh, Michael's fetus, it, 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 it would just kind of <laughs> right. that's a weird way of putting it. But you know what I mean? I like know what that, you mean. It could have been always anybody. resented. Yeah, she always yeah. resented Michael for being that first kid that ruined her her life, essentially. If she hadn't had him, then things would have been different for her. Yeah, well, they would. She's, she's not wrong about that. Yeah. She also, uh, Pat, was very uh, brutal with animals. She was in a, she, uh, uh, Michael's sister, Tina, told a story of coming home from school one day and finding, that, finding out that her mother had thrown the cat out of the second story window. She was also known to vacuum the cat all the time out of frustration with the hair and whatnot. So it actually vacuumed the cat. I'm sure the cat wasn't very happy about that. <laughs> no, I'm probably not. I'm sorry. Um, the, sister Tina, the sister Tina also said she also made us declaw the cat. She said if we didn't declaw the cat that she would put a rock around its head and throw it in the lake. Damn. Very brutal. Like that's She did not that's like over cats, the, man. That's what I'm getting here. That, that's over the top. That's like that's uh, torture of the cat. Like, right. There's a lot quicker ways to kill a cat than drowning it with a rock in a lake. Right. Why do you even have cats? Like, just get rid of them. Or you live in right. a farm, just let them run around. They'll, they'll be fine. They have better opportunities than living there. Yeah. Here's another story that kind of gives a little insight into uh, Michael's uh, psyche later on, maybe. Another message of Pat Ross's behavior was that her children should never stand up for themselves. At age six, Michael was the constant target of a neighborhood bully named Johnny. One day, Johnny chased Michael all the way home, and in an uncharacteristically bold act, Michael picked up a stick, turned around, and started to hit Johnny with it. Startled at Michael's newfound courage, Johnny turned and ran. Hearing the commotion, Pat came to the window and observed the entire episode. She said, quote, bring me that stick. She called to her son, obediently and proud that he had finally had the courage to defend himself. Michael picked up the stick and took it to his mother. It was a rare occasion when Pat carried out the beating herself rather than uh, waiting for the father to come home to do it. When he got inside, Pat grabbed the stick from Michael and proceeded to, quote, beat the hell out of me. Michael remembered, quote, she was so mad and she beat me so badly that I needed a butterfly bandage for the cut on my forehead. Confused and hurt, Johnny knew that he was the, been essentially powerless against uh, another bully. He said, quote, it's emotionally castrating to do that to a little boy. The message is very clear. You can't stand up for yourself. 
Um, this was a uh, psychiatrist, actually, that was at his trial later that spoke about that event and what kind of message it relayed to the young boy that yeah. became a serial killer later on. Right. I think I would have to, um, I'd have to see this scene to know who to believe here. Right. You know what I mean? Because maybe, maybe he took it too far. Maybe the kid was just, like teasing him and calling him names, and then he started beating the kid with a stick. It's like, mm, maybe yeah, he took I, that a little too far. I pictured it being very rage-filled, kind of like in a Christmas story when Ralphie finally stood up to, yeah, what was his name? The the red hair, the, the, the yellow eyes kid. kid. Yeah, yeah. He beat the he shit. Had yellow out. eyes. Yeah. Yellow eyes. Yellow eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ralphie. Go- but I mean that that one feels okay though, you know. I don't know for some reason. Oh, that was great. That just feels that was so great. justified. He was barely even hitting the kid anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Just letting them have it, buddy. Yeah, that was great. Um, another event, which I found quite bad, from uh, Mother Pat. She also made Michael have his favorite dog and possibly best friend in the world at the time because he didn't have many friends and he was you know, the target of bullies and whatnot. His dog, Charlie Brown, um, put down prematurely. Um, basically, he came home one day and Charlie Brown, starting to go blind, but was still in good health overall. And his mother said... That dog's gonna. The dog's too old. Kill it. Take it out and shoot it. She Damn. told him to take the dog out and shoot it. He took it out, you know, and uh, he took it out by like I guess his grandfather lived kind of on the same farm on the other side or whatever. He took it over there, and his grandfather's like, "You're not, you're not shooting that dog." Um, so he basically told him to take it to the vet and have the vet put it down humanely. Um, yeah. He held the dog as it died, and when he got back to the house, his family was then home, aside from just his mother who was there earlier, and they all basically chastised him for it and said, why would you, why would you kill Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown was in perfectly good health. Oh and the mother God. said nothing, basically let him take the blame for it and whatnot. And he knew, he knew too. He knew that the dog was going to live a lot longer, but she made him put down this dog. Oh shit. That's Terrible. fucked up. Just, so not only know, does man. she hate him, she wants the whole family to hate him. That is some twisted that, shit right there. Dude, she, you know what? It, and it's bringing back memory of, of reading this book. I didn't put it in the crime line, but that was what she was known for by the family. All the siblings, everybody said the same thing is that you couldn't let her find out your weakness. Even the young daughters at a young age, they would hide things that they really liked from her. Like they, if they had like a favorite doll, they wouldn't like carry that doll around her and let her know that they liked it because the second she found a weakness, even if it was like her young child, she would take that. What was it? The One of the daughters, I forget what it was. She, like a favorite blanket or something. She freaking ruined it. Like it, it, she found out the daughter liked the blanket so much and ruined it and acted like it was on accident, but they all knew. It just shit like that. Yeah. She was very good at playing mind games with you like that. And I'm sure it made them hard to really trust anyone. You know, when your mother's doing these devious acts to you like that as a young at a young age, it's like it's like you almost wonder, it's like, do some people just wanna be hated? I think they just wanna right? be hated. Maybe they hate themselves so much. Maybe she had no self worth whatsoever. Maybe she's not narcissistic. Maybe she just thinks she's absolute trash and she's like, If I can get them to hate me, then I won't feel so bad about just leaving. Because it seemed like right. that's what she wanted to do anyways. You know what I mean? Yep. If it's your idea that I leave, then I'm not such a bad mother to society. Does that make sense? If your kids want you to mm-hmm. leave and you're, you're actually bettering their lives by not being in them, maybe you feel less guilty. But maybe, yeah. Maybe she was hoping that they would, they would be okay with her taking off. And I think they would have at a certain point. I agree, yeah. Life would. would have been a lot easier. No doubt. So Michael would excel in school 
all the way through, really. He was kind of like the teacher's pet all the time. Um, he would end up graduating in 1977 from Killingly High School in Killingly, Connecticut. He would end up being accepted into Cornell University into their agriculture p- program and was even a teacher's assistant, as we briefly mentioned. He was the kid gre- grading papers, and at one point, after getting done grading papers, uh, followed a student in the class that he was a fellow classmate of, and uh, that was his first victim. We'll get that to that in a minute, but that just gives you some insight into what kind of evil monster he was, right. grading papers and then uh, strangling one of the students later. Right. He was having no problems meeting girls at Cornell. Surprisingly, like everything you you would think, like that's the one difference between him and Kemper is that actually he didn't really didn't have a problem getting girls. He wasn't all that awkward right. with them, believe it or not. He was actually like an insurance salesman. He, he could talk. He was... It was more just this internal problem where sexually he wasn't satisfied. He had these fantasies of rape and all that stuff. Right. Um, yeah, I, I see that too. He's a little thinner than Kemper, um, not so yeah. big and goofy. You know what I mean? If he ditched the stupid glasses, he has some of the worst eyeglasses you could you've ever seen in your life. Yeah. If he ditched those, especially younger, you see pictures of well, him. Well, the mugshot Aside photo. From the glasses, he's not a bad looking guy. The mugshot photo is is everyone's least flattering photo. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Under the pretense, and then yeah. also the lighting too. It's just no one looks yeah. good in a mugshot, dude. Right. But there's a picture of him being walked to like to the police car, yeah. and when he was first caught, and he's young and thin and. Aside from the glasses, like I said, he wasn't a bad-looking dude, so I can see how he didn't really have a problem getting girls in, high, in college. Yeah. Um, and he would end up having a uh, serious relationship, which uh, was going on. He, he was like in love with this girl, um, but however, she became pregnant. Surpri- like, uh, there was a surprise pregnancy. They would use condoms all the time, but then one weekend, they got a little lackadaisical with it. You know, that's how that goes. It only takes once. Mm-hmm. She ended up getting pregnant, and when she told him, he didn't react well. They went on break in college, and by the time they met back up, she had had an abortion, and he felt terrible about the way that he had treated the situation. He said that he, I felt like I should have been there for her, right. and their relationship was never the same again after that. And he always speculated, even in uh, in on death row later on, like what what could have been with this relationship that he had in Cornell. He said that she was really a perfect for him and that he blew it essentially and that maybe well it was the way i think it was wishful thinking i think those demons were always going to catch up with him he would have gotten bored with her and he would have been off raping and killing people it was inevitable i think with him he just had these these demons that i I don't think he's he was right for the insanity plea but at the same time he had a sickness much like a pedophile where you know if you don't go get help and you let those demons speak for you right you're at fault, yeah. But it's also unfortunate that that's what you you know what you kind of the ailment that you either were born with or that you somehow developed over time. I think he was very aware of this of this yes, ailment. He was definitely. very aware of it. That's why he drug his feet with the whole baby thing. He, I mean, mm-hmm. from what I can tell, he basically over that break he had no contact with her whatsoever. So I mean, right. <laughs> if you had anything to do with a family or a baby, you thought you were capable of being a father or a husband, he, you would have you would have interacted there. You wouldn't have allowed her to just be alone mm-hmm. on this break. I mean, he can think about it all he wants, but he knows that he was incapable of that kind of relationship. He was at least that intelligent. He would get into relationships with women, and, and he would do things to kind of push them away, it seems. Exactly. Like there was a few times in college where he kind of pushed them away, and it was on his accord, and I think it's because, like, the things you're talking about, like he knew. Yep. This won't last because I have these these issues. Yep, I have these needs that have to be met, and they they are mm-hmm. not met in this lifestyle. Right. 
Um, so that that woman would end up going on to join the military at the time when they were dating. She was in ROTC, and she always kind of wanted to go on the military path, and that's where they split ways. Um, by this time, he was exhibiting antisocial behavior, including stalking young teenage girls. So while at Cornell, he started to develop this this habit and this this uh, newfound thing that he would love to do is go out at night and just follow girls. And at first, he he loved the idea that he could see them, that he was watching them and they had no idea. And then it started progressing to the point where he wanted them to see him. Yeah. And he got off on their fear when he would see them lock eyes and like realize that he was following them, the fear that they had. Yeah. This reminded, that really got him excited. This reminded me of Bundy with the peeping Tom stuff yeah. early on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very reminiscent of Bundy. It does seem to be a gateway thing, doesn't yeah, it? it does. Right. When you're a peeping Tom at a young age, it seems like a lot of times, sometimes, a lot of times it, it's just a phase some some young men go through and then they never progress, it goes anywhere, but a lot of times it progresses from there. It, yeah. The excitement's not enough anymore and you need to go a little further. You got to get a little closer. Right. That's right. <clears throat> um, at this time, he became a uh, an insurance salesman. Um, he would be stalking females during his sophomore year in college and continue to do so during his senior year as well. This is when he would create uh, commit his first rape was in his senior year at Cornell, and um, his first murder would follow very shortly after, the same month of his graduation in May of 1981. And this would be Zung Nok Tu, um, a student who was in the class that, that shared a class with him. She had come to the United States from Vietnam when she was 10. She mastered English almost immediately and was a, uh, was a high honor student at Walt Whitman High School in Bethesda in Maryland. And... Uh, she would. Uh, she was really? a quiet but studious uh, student, but far from reclusive. Here's a quote uh, <laughs> from one of her friends. We went to Bloomingdale's and bought these matching work shirts. She lived in that. Recalled a freshman roommate, Victoria Balfour. Uh, Maria, another cl- close friend in college, did not want her last name used, but described Zung as a very bright and sweet and kind. She had a wry sense of humor. Zung was an ep- economics major and spent her junior year at the London School of Economics she had a large extended family that was so proud of her attending Vassar. They all came in carloads at the end of the year to pick her up. She was a big source of pride for their family. Um, she gradu- graduated from Vassar in 1977 and won the Economic Department's Honors Prize. Her friends described her as very polite, maybe five foot one and 90 pounds at most, so a very tiny girl. Mm-hmm. Um, her body would end up being found at the bottom of Fall Creek Gorge in Ithaca, New York, near the fraternity house where Ross lived. She had had an evening class with him that night and was last seen alive um, at that class. Campus and Ithaca police initially listed her death as suicide, which really angered her family and friends because they knew that she basically had never. That there was, was no not way. a possibility with this. With this, no. For all woman. she had accomplished, the track she was mm-hmm. on, she was not about to take her life at this point. Yeah, I think things were working out for her. Yeah. Um, Yes, yeah, so one of her friends said, I don't think I, I ever heard of her having a single bout of depression. She was not that kind of person. She enjoyed living too much. She enjoyed everything too much. Ross said after this one that he hated himself for what he had done and tried to commit suicide, but lacked the ability to do it and instead promised himself he would never hurt anyone again. He said that all the way till the end nice. that he was a coward. He never oh, was man. able to, yeah. to pull the trigger, no pun intended, uh, as far as killing himself. And this was, right, and this was part of the process he would, you know, he would say he would never do it again, mm-hmm. or he'd never act on it, and then it happens, and then he feels terrible, and then he wants to kill himself, and he's like, "I'm never doing that again." Then yep. the urge comes up, and he does it again. Yep. It's, it's just no impulse control as far as this goes. Yep. So that would end up being his first victim, and it wouldn't be discovered uh, who who killed this young woman until much later. The day after graduation from Cornell, Michael headed for his new job in Lewisburg, North Carolina, and uh, hey, yeah, so welcome back, welcome back to North Carolina. 
<laughs> he started work at Cargill as a predict. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Cargill? Cargill? I guess. That's, that's a company. Oh, <laughs> I thought maybe that was a town in North Carolina. <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, duh. He started no. work at Cargill. Duh. I thought maybe that was the town that <clears throat> apparently it's the company. Yeah. As a, uh, as a production management trainee following the following Monday in the egg processing plant. On the weekend, he looked for a place to live and rented a small trailer about 10 minutes outside of the road to Raleigh. Raleigh? Is that right? Raleigh. 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 Yep. That's, that's the uh, state capital. That's not far from you, right? Uh, that's about three hours from me, actually. Oh, okay. That's, that's a little closer to the coast. Okay. The move did nothing to calm his obsessions. He was in an unknown environment, feeling, out, feeling off from his family and fiance. If anything, his frustration fueled his urges. I began, so yeah, he was with an, in another serious relationship at this point, which didn't last. That's what, hence the fiance. Um, right. Quote, I began stalking the day I got to Lewisburg, even before moving into my trailer. As, and as soon as I began to make regular trips to Raleigh, to Raleigh on stalking excursions. Um, yeah, because now he's in a new place. Dude. Yep. He's got this new mystery to him. Nobody mm-hmm. suspects him. Nobody knows who he is. Oh, we've seen the success you know I mean? of serial killers being in outside of their jurisdiction, being in places they love that. they're not from. I mean, how are you going to track that in those days, especially in the 80s, 70s? It's nearly impossible. Exactly. You have no reputation. Nobody knows you. You could yep. literally be anywhere for any reason, according to anybody else. You know yeah, what I'm you're saying? an unknown entity just passing through. That's right. So in Rollsville, is that how you pronounce that one? Yeah, Rollsville, Rollsville I think. Yeah. Um, on August 25th, 1981, Michael attacked another woman. He was prowling around when he spotted Carol, uh, which was actually not a real name, leaving the po- local po- uh, post office, pushing a seven-month-old baby in a stroller. This is a horrific part of this tale. Uh, if you're sensitive, well, you're listening to a True Crime Podcast, but um, this is uh, this was one of his rapes that I thought was mentionable just because of how heinous this act is. As as she did it's almost every day to know. Yeah, the kind of animal we're dealing with here. As she did almost every day, she walked a quarter mile back to her house with the baby stroller with her with her child, unaware that she was being followed. Michael ended up raping the woman in front of her baby, and she would ultimately identify her, uh, her uh, him as her attacker three years later once he was discovered to be what he was. Um, she would see his face yeah. and, and uh, connect the dots there. But yeah, the, there's a lot more details to that story that I really didn't even want to go into. But the whole gist of it is that he, he was that monstrous that he actually used the baby against her in a sense. He, he was threatened threatening to harm the baby Yes, um, if she didn't do what he wanted and those type of things. And yeah, it was, it was horrible to listen to. I mean, he would go to those extents. I honestly think people, people are like, how did he get these women to just submit to him? He wasn't that big. He wasn't a big, strong guy. It's because of the the... The level he was willing to go verbally, the threats he was willing to make, I yeah. think caught these people off guard. You're like, holy shit, you're going to do what to my baby? Yeah, and also like, he, he did it, the old shtick of making you making them feel comfortable initially. He would a lot of times he would pick up a woman who was hitchhiking mm-hmm. and he would convince them if you know that he was going to take them where he wanted once they just, once they discovered that that wasn't happening, he would basically just tell them like do what I want and you'll live. And he would get them yeah. in a vulnerable position where they're tied up face down. And at that point, they finally learned that they weren't going to live. It was that you know he what? wanted control the whole time. And what I found really interesting was, conveniently enough, he couldn't remember what he said to get any of these women. Like, ultimately, he couldn't remember that that one phrase that got them to submit or to cower. Right. He, he could never remember it. If you watch his interviews, he's it didn't like, matter oh, I said to him. something. Uh, yeah. I don't remember what I said. Right. It, it didn't matter well, as long also, as the, the end goal was met. It didn't matter what means you had to use to get there, you know. Well, true, but I think it also has something to do with him not wanting to be seen as this ho- as this monster. As oh this yeah, just no doubt. Horrible 
fucking person. He would rather be seen as someone who just can't help it. And he's acting no doubt. on impulse. And, Not important and, what I said. It kind of yeah. is. And a little insight into that. We've talked a lot of times about serial killers, how they, they even draw lines where they go, well, I wouldn't harm a child or whatever. There was lines he drew yeah. where what, there was two young girls that he would end up abducting, raping, and killing later on that were 14. They were best yeah. friends that we'll talk about. And the common theory you'll see a lot of times when you read about this guy is that he, there, the only girl that he ever raped that he killed was one of those two 14-year-old girls. He didn't rape her because she was too small and, and he felt bad. That, that was absolutely 100% false. And, and you'll learn a lot of the details in the book and he actually, he actually did rape her um, and, and before he killed her. And it was just kind of like, he, he put that out there because he felt bad or whatever, but it, it, he, he cared yeah, about what people bullshit. thought about him. And that's what we find out ultimately. He, he hated the fact that everyone hated him and despised him and saw him as this monster, and that played into a lot of his actions later on. That's why he did the whole uh, taking on the death penalty because he didn't want to go through another trial. A lot of it had to do with mm-hmm. the fact that he didn't want a bunch of people sitting outside the prison while he was being executed cheering. That was his biggest fear. Yeah, he brought that up several times. Day after day, day after day, because he used to get tons of mail, and yep. you know that shit wasn't positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of it was. There's some. I know there's women who fall in love with these guys. And I understand that, but mm-hmm. I mean, in the documentary, there were he just showed stacks and stacks of letters that he'd been received. So you mm-hmm. know, a lot of that is hate mail. Well, I don't know if it, he'd be keeping that, but right. for whatever reason, you know, he's catching a lot of shit, mm-hmm. which he should be. Oh yeah, no doubt. No. Um, for a long time, he was known as the biggest monster Connecticut had ever seen. Pretty much, you know. Yeah. They were wondering how somebody like that could come out of that area. So. <laughs> well, they're kind of snooty over there, to be fair. They, they, they think their shit don't stink. You got, you got psychos up there, too, Connecticut. You just our shit don't stink. It. Our chicken shit might stink, but our shit don't stink. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> chicken <laughs> shit is awful smelling. It's so bitter. It's like vinegary. I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. And as someone who hates vinegary really, really stuff, I hate picture. mustard. I hate anything vinegar-based. It's like extra repulsive yeah. to me. Mm. So let's, you mean. let's dive into his first arrest. Not long after moving to North Carolina, Michael was required to attend a month-long management seminar, mostly at the corporate office in Minneapolis, but including a week in Illinois visiting various Cargill companies. The first night in Illinois, Michael was restless, and it didn't take long before he saw a 15-year-old girl walking along the road three blocks from home to a nearby motel to buy a pack of cigarettes. So she was walking to the local motel to get some cigarettes just a few blocks from her right. house. On her way to the motel, she became suspicious when a car passed her three or four times. While she was inside the motel, she noticed that the same car was parked outside and the driver was staring at her through the window. Very fucking creepy. Like, and bold, you know? I think as another sign of him being somewhere where no one knew him and he felt a little bit more bold, like he couldn't mm-hmm. be caught, you know? Um, right. She would end up leaving the motel and went ho- uh, headed home along the same well-lit path. She saw Michael coming toward her, trying to hide behind telephone poles as he wove back and forth. Good God. Seriously, not so sneaky there. I picture him thinking he was. there was no way she saw him, right? He thought he was so much sneakier than he was. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, as he God, passed her... Hiding skills. Right. As he passed her, he grabbed her from behind and put both arms around her throat and told her not to say anything. Quote, I'm not going to hurt you. Just give me your money. She screamed, but he put his hand around her mouth, put a knife to her throat, and pulled her into the woods. Initially, he threw her on the ground, but but then stood her up, thinking that he wanted money. She gave him $2 she had in her back pocket, but instead of taking it and leaving, he walked her deeper into the woods, all the time seeming nervous. 
Finally, he threw her down on the ground and stuffed his handkerchief into her mouth as she lay on her stomach, but then she heard police searching in the woods, responding to a neighbor who had reported initial screams. So saved by the day, saved by the, the local people in town that had heard her screams and done the right thing and being cautious, called the police who were already out searching for her. That's why I went into so much detail. I wouldn't have gone into all this detail if I didn't know it had a kind of a happy ending to this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, scared, Michael jumped up and ran. Um, quote, I could have raped her, but I just kept, uh, but just kept her quiet while I tried to make some sense of what was going on. But when I saw the police car, I ran off. I don't think I would have heard her even if the police didn't come. Bullshit. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. You coward. hundred percent bullshit. Yep. Um, when the police were, when the police were driving Priscilla home, she spotted his rental car parked along the road. The police waited for him and arrested him when he returned on foot to be, to pick it up. So this was be his first arrest. The attack lasted less than 15 minutes, but it traumatized this girl so much that she quit high school and went into seclusion. That was the last report of her on the police record. This was the first time Michael had been caught and arrested. He was not only scared of what would happen to him legally, but also ashamed when he had to call his parents to get him out of, uh, to bail him out of jail. He was also Which terrified did, that he was also terrified that someone would connect him to the murder and rapes in Cornell. Um, on advice from his lawyer, he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years probation for unlawful restraint. After uh, resigning from Cargill, he returned to Connecticut to try to pull his life together, event, uh, again convincing himself that he could stop. So that whole moment, once again, where it's like, yeah, I've done yeah, wrong, we go. but that'll be the last time. I'm going to pull it together. Right. I'm going to be a Turned good person. a new leaf. Yeah. yeah. Which leads us to his next murder. Uh, Tammy Williams was the only child of Norma and Everett Williams. She loved to figure skate and played basketball and would probably be alive today if she hadn't looked looked at Ross after uh, he raped her and said that she knew who he was. So she actually knew Michael Ross. This was so close to his home. She'd actually walked through his farm several times. They went to school together. Um, Tammy lived in Brooklyn, Connecticut, the same small town, barely a mile from where Ross grew up and his family had uh, the large eggs farm. Michael had spotted Tammy walking home from her boyfriend's house less than a mile from his farm. He had gone to high school with her. He took her to a secluded location where he raped and strangled her. Um, When she disappeared January 5th, 1982, her father and uncle and other relatives organized search parties uh, crisscrossing the wooded areas and marshes surrounding her home. They found no clues or sign of her. She was 17, and she would end up being missing for almost two and a half years um, before being found. It was really devastating, uh, said her uncle, um, uh, Steve St. John. Uh, We all went out and searched. Come to find about two years later, I could have walked right over her body. So they had searched the area where her body was later found several times right. um, and you don't think michael um identified her you don't think he just he knew who she was and he planned on killing her from the start i don't think it was planned out i think it was an opportunity thing where maybe he had maybe he had seen her before and, and fantasized her about her and then all of a sudden there she is alone and he had his chance mm-hmm. i don't think he that's what i'm saying premeditated to where he like waited for her at her house and then fall you know i think he was just driving and saw her like a lot of times that was his crimes they were just opportunity roadside strangler type thing where it's like there she is i pull over and she's isolated alone Um, right but i think he knew who she was is what i'm saying someone someone like oh yeah no doubt as intelligent as he was he knew who she was yeah you know he likes to say oh she'd be alive if she didn't identify me no i think you you picked her out you knew her and you were going to kill her from the beginning because she does know who you are yeah um 
Yeah, her uncle said the scary thing about this whole thing was that she knew him. It really changed not only our lives, but the lives of everyone in the community. You never used to lock your doors. We used to let the kids go out and play, be by themselves and walk to school. That all changed. Yeah, so this was such an innocent um, time and place that he really yeah. changed forever. Absolutely. Let's talk about his next victim, Paula, Paula Pereira. In March of 1982, a 16-year-old curly-haired blonde named Paula Pereira who had been missing for more than two weeks, was found dead on the side of the road in the town of Wallkill, about 60 miles north of New York City. Pamela, uh, Paula was the girl everyone wanted to be friends with in school. Um, she loathed clicks and bent, bent her ear for everyone. Hanging out with Paula was always a carefree adventure, rarely scripted and sometimes reckless. Quote uh, from a, cl a close friend of hers, we'd ride our bikes for miles. One summer we rode for so long we got a bad sunburn, we looked like lobsters. <laughs> um, <laughs> But Paula's biggest adventures, the ones she embarked on with her flip-flop, with, with the flip of her thumb, concerned her tight-knit group of friends. So she was known to hitchhike, and she believed the best in everyone. She always, she said, I wouldn't take any rides from creeps, basically. Um, and yeah. she, I guess, estimated that wrong on this day. She uh, hitched a ride with the wrong person. Um, Indeed. Yeah. Um, she'd tell us all these stories about the people she would meet while all along we'd be like, okay, that's great, but this time, that, that's great this time, but don't do it again. We would tell her again and again not to do it. And on March 2nd, 1982, Paula asked a friend for a ride after she missed the bus to the vocational school where she was taking culinary classes. When the friend could not oblige, Paula hitched a ride. It was her last. Ross, then 22, was headed home after visiting his girlfriend at Cornell University when he picked up Paula. He would end up drugging her, dragging her off into the woods where he beat, raped, and strangled her. She would be found two weeks later. So you got to, man, that's one of those moments where it's like the friend that she called for the ride and the friend said she, they couldn't, like they, how terrible oh, do they feel dude. forever. You know, they must feel somewhat responsible, even though it's totally not their fault. You can never predict something I like know. that. But You can never, yeah. But how you do you not? what they had to do. How do you yeah. not think about what could have been had you just, you know, dropped whatever you were doing and given her that ride? But again, time after time, people told her to stop hitchhiking. Mm -hmm. I mean, True. You're talking about in the 80s here. Yep. <laughs> I mean, we'd already seen what the 70s hitchhiking, hitchhiking had brought us throughout the country, yes. all the different serial killers. Yes. Um, in, in April of 1982, Ross had his second run-in with the law when he followed home a pregnant female off-duty police officer from the laundromat. He knocked at her door and claimed to have had car trouble, so he followed her to her apartment Water, saw her go inside, which, you know, when she lived in, knocked on the door and pulled the old car trouble routine. This is pre-cell phone. How many lives has cell phones saved just from the fact that how many people used to knock on doors and say, I need, a, I need to use your phone and end up yeah. either robbing you, killing you, whatever. Nowadays, we know if you're knocking and you need to use a phone, it's like, oh, dude, you ain't got a cell phone, motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, get out. Right. Yeah, I told you that happened, that happened to me in Vegas. Somebody knocked on my door at 11 o'clock oh, and I want to use my yep. phone. I'm like, uh, no. Right, that's that's happened <laughs> to me too, man. Gas station down the road. Gas yeah, station down the road. Home burglaries are a real problem, and a lot of times that's how it goes. They knock on the door more more than anything. They're just hoping that no one answers, so then they could go around the back. You know that they yep. once someone answers, they're like, "Ah, oh, shit, move on to the next one," type of thing. Or yep. if they hear dogs right. barking, whatever. But they got to have some stupid right. excuse if someone does answer, and that's the whole "oh, I need to use your phone" thing. It's like exactly. What year is it? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> Well, so I just she read how to how to be a criminal for dummies, and it said right. It's surprising to me, uh, her being a police officer, that she actually let him inside. But one uh, one uh, safeguard she used was that she actually um, asked him for his name, and he actually obliged and gave her his real name, which gives you some insight that he was planning on killing her. I would think you wouldn't give your real name if you were going to rape someone and then leave. Like, 
makes right. no sense. So uh, oh, he was absolutely planning on killing her. I think he even showed her his ID. I yeah, believe. I believe she asked for his. Maybe ID. that's maybe that's maybe why she felt confident she enough did. to let him in, right? If someone shows you their ID. Mm-hmm. Um, once Sorry. inside, he attempted to choke her, but she fought. She was able to fight him off, and he fled. Although he had given her his actual real name, as we mentioned, Ross would end up being tracked down and identified by the woman and arrested for assault. However, he only spent one month in prison before being bailed out by his parents. Um, he was evaluated by psychiatrists at this time and found to be in a state of turmoil over his parents' recent divorce, which is just laughable. It's like you're you're entering a woman's house and and uh, attempting to rape her and whatnot. It's because oh, it's and you're in your twenties and it's over like your parents getting divorced. Like, come on, what a cop yeah. out! Like, yeah, he's full of shit on that. Why do you think he chose her though? All of his other ones were, were small, vulnerable victims. And then you're going to choose an off-duty police officer? He, she may not have been it's a like, very big woman. That's how I expected and, it to go. He, she, she may not have carried herself like a police. She was off-duty. She was wearing plain clothes. And maybe she wasn't a very big woman. You don't have to be very big to be a cop. So he just underestimated her and had yeah, no he idea. He didn't stalk her long enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he would have found out she was a cop. I mean, you know, cops, I mean... They got some kind of hand-to-hand combat, enough to take oh, on no somebody doubt. who's That's, 160 pounds. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and someone who likes control. I don't know. Um, as much yeah. as he liked someone to show signs of pain and whatnot, that he got off on that as a sexual sadist, he wanted control. And when they fought him from the get-go and he never gains control, it would make him nervous. And uh-huh. so we've told, yeah. we said time and time again on this, it's always better to fight than to not, you know what I mean? To, to make noise, to make a scene... Don't give them the yes. control that they want because it never ends well. Right. And no matter what, they're, they're, they don't want you to fight. Regardless right. of how big they are, they don't want any fight at all. Exactly. Much uh-huh. like we just talked about with them, you know, someone breaking into a home. They're hoping no one's there, no dogs are there. It's much easier. Right. Yep. Um, so let's talk about Deborah Smith-Taylor. Uh, Deborah disappeared on June 5th, 1982 after a quarrel with her estranged husband. Their vehicle had run out of gas and the two parted in search of a service station walking in opposite directions. They had gotten into this argument and they were fighting and she wandered off and a witness reported seeing Deborah sitting at a, on a park bench in Danielson about 11 p.m. Um, three months later, hunters would find her remains in Canterbury. She was a very good aunt, according to her brother and the loss of Deborah, the family believes weakened their usually tough father as he fought leukemia he would end up dying in 1984 when he was 56. The father and daughter rest aside uh, each other in a local cemetery. And so she had apparently being upset with her husband and wandering off. She must have hitched a ride with Ross. You know, he found this vulnerable moment for her and she got in the car and did his typical MO of probably taking her off into the woods and strangling her. Um, right. Her skeletal remains would be found three months later after her murder. She had been tied up, raped, and strangled. Um, uh, let's talk about Robin Stavinsky, who was 19. She, uh, she was known as a mischievous uh, teenager, strong-willed, and a blonde tomboy by her friends. That's a, kind of an older term that you don't hear too much anymore. No, you don't. Um, quote, she would have been a beautiful young woman, a really good person who would have put 100% into whatever she did, said her mother, Joan Stavinsky. Quote, it's very sad that it never happened because she was simply in the wrong place at the time. Uh, she was that it ever happened because she was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like um, most of these women were. Yeah. Honestly, it was just a fluke. Mm-hmm. Just a fluke. Uh, Stavinsky's coworkers were the last people to see her alive on November 16th, 1983. She had recently moved to Norwich, where she planned to keep working until she saved enough money for college. A jogger found her body near the entrance um, to a hospital in Norwich. 
Her family recounts her childhood stories with great detail as if they happened yesterday. Uh, her stepsister recalls how Robin, a state champion discus thrower, would ascend to every seven-step staircase in the house, barely touching a step. Uh, yeah, she was a hell of an athlete. She was actually known by as the Hulk to uh, the neighborhood boys. Like she, she was because of her muscles. She was pretty jacked, apparently. Wow. Uh, Why did he pick her? You know? I, yeah, I, I think know. he was just wanting a challenge at the end. Here. I don't know. It was just like, or maybe he wanted to get caught. Maybe he wanted somebody to beat the shit out of him. Yeah. Her family yeah, even he felt less guilty. Her family even wondered how he was even able to gain control over her, as, as tough as she was. Um, her mother mm. said, "Quote: She had one speed, and it was super speed. From hockey to water skiing, there wasn't a sport Robin couldn't ace." In local newspaper stories about her success in high school track and field, students talked about how they idolized her. Newspaper photographs in her, of her in action on the field show Robin with a determined face, muscular thighs, and outstanding discus form. Quote, the boys in the neighborhood feared her, her mother said. Um, and they, and the people in her family, like I said, could never under, understand how Ross was able to overcome her sister's power. Um, quote, I still can't believe how he could have gotten the best of her, uh, said her sister. She was a fighter. She took care of all of us. I could, I could never understand how this could happen to someone with her will and strength. Um, her mother said that she never... Uh, that she neither nor Robin's father would attend the scheduled execution, but that the family would have representatives there. They said, quote, will it bring us closure? No. Will I feel sorry for him? No. So that that's speaking of his later execution, which we already mm -hmm. kind of spoiled earlier. He was executed after a long time on death row. Right. So let's get to the unfortunate... Um, the youngest victims. Yeah, the youngest victims, the, the pair of best friends that were 14 years old. Um, two months before they died on an afternoon when they had nothing better to do than just be uh, best of friends, Leslie and April drew up adoption papers for one another. They adopted each other as sisters, making all sound quite official using their middle names and all. So they, they basically <laughs> lived three doors down from each other, and they had been friends yeah. since they were six years old, been best friends, and to the point where they dreamed of being sisters and even drew up fake adoption papers. Quote, if April wasn't down there, Leslie was up here. Leslie's father, Edwin Shelley, said as the uh, motion to a window that looked out on Dina Lane, where April Brunes lived with her mother and stepfather um, a few houses away. The girls had been thick as thieves since the roads moved to the neighborhood when the girls were about six. They signed cards to one another, love you like a sis. They made cookie dough ornaments and drove their parents crazy with their hysterical giggling. The girls had gone to First Congregational Church of Griswold that Easter Sunday morning in April of 1984. So this was Easter Sunday, 1984. Leslie spent the mm -hmm. afternoon babysitting her little sister. And when the father came home, Leslie asked if she and April could go into Jewett City, the center of Griswold, to catch a movie. Shelley gave his permission but told Leslie before she left she had to give him a kiss on the cheek. Quote, I hadn't shaved. I was grizzly, Shelley said. She bent down and kissed me on the cheek. The two girls, inseparable, left for the movies. Leslie called her father about 7 p.m. to say that they were on their way home, that Miss Rude was picking them up. However, they actually didn't have a ride um, from the other mother. Robin said that her parents were quite strict and that she and her siblings were required to call their parents anytime they changed locations, but the girls didn't have a ride. They were hitchhiking home, and it was Michael Ross, unfortunately, who picked them up, offering them a ride. Um, he drove them to Preston to a deserted stretch of road near the woods. They had asked him to drop them off at this gas station, and after he passed the gas station, one of them pulled out a knife, actually, and that's what we talked about earlier in the interview he's done where he, you yeah. know, he kind of giggled about one of them pulled off out a knife, and I almost drove off the road. Yeah. Um, um, off Especially in, at 14. I was surprised at yeah. this. 
when no I doubt. when I read this, I was like, okay, fourteen year old had a knife. Well, she yeah. wasn't, she wasn't stupid. Yeah. I mean, somewhat prepared. Yeah, it was dark but mild out. He pulled April out of the car first and made Leslie get into the trunk so she couldn't run. Michael would go on to rape and kill both girls. The Shelleys and Rhodes had no idea what happened when the girls did not return home. Both fathers went knocking on doors of friends' houses and looking in areas where the teens were known to party. Quote, I guess we kind of put ourselves on numb, Edwin Shelley said. We didn't know if she'd, been run, if she'd run away or been killed or what. And uh, they would later find out the unfortunate news that they were indeed killed. Um, so let's, let's get into Michael Ross's final victim, the one that would take him down, Wendy Barabalt. Uh, was well-liked by her friends at Norwich Free Academy who described her as a caring and sensitive person who enjoyed life. The 17-year-old junior from Lisbon liked going to the movies and hanging out at the beach. She loved music and would sit in on jam sessions with a local band that played some of her favorite tunes. Wendy left her parents a note on the kitchen counter on June 13, 1984, saying she was walking to a nearby convenience store. She never returned. She was last seen alive walking along Route 12. Her body was found two days later under a pile of rocks near the road. It was a trip learned during the investigation of Barat's death that, that helped lead police to Ross, a tip. Um, so Dude, someone had, he, got, he was so brash with this one. Is that what you were going to say? That's what I was just about to say. So brazen with this one. I watched a walkthrough. Um, it's a, this guy did a walkthrough of it in 2011, exactly where he saw her, where his car was parked, and mm -hmm. where he walked along her on the side of the road, how yeah. far off the road. He did it in front of everyone on the main strip. Dude, and, and super he, brazen. He talked about it uh, actually in this book in an interview with Heather, the author, and he, he basically said that he alluded to the fact that he kind of wanted to be caught at this point and he knew that he was never going to stop and that something had to stop him and he didn't have the courage to kill himself. So yeah. he, he just saw her and in front of everyone just did this dramatic U-turn and like screeched in front of her and got out of the car and just like basically abducted her. In front Pretty of people, much. and that's what got him Took caught. Right down in the woods. Yeah, I mean, he waited until less traffic was coming, but this is a pretty busy road. Yeah, um, the video that this this guy did. I mean, he was walking along this stretch for probably five to six minutes, and cars were constantly coming mm -hmm. by. I don't think there was ever a time where you would be able to grab someone and take them down with no one seeing. Right now, this is in 2011. I'm sure yeah. you know in the 80s it wasn't quite that busy. 1984. Yeah, but still, yeah. still a busy road. Yeah, so they had seen her with a man in a blue compact car. Investigators focused on more than 2,500 owners of blue Toyotas registered in Connecticut. And believe it or not, their first stop was Michael. Out of 2,500 owners, they narrowed it down to less. And then they, they basically went to the one closest to the area of the abduction, which was Michael Ross. They went to his home <laughs> because his house was the center of the small circle where the woman had either disappeared or where the bodies were found. Yeah, so they were also starting to connect and, and possibly think that one person was killing these women in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. um, they thought they might have a, what I'm sure at this time was not even a common word used, serial killer, because it's still the 80s. Um, right. But, um, Ross invited the police in and within hours was detailing his murders and leading police. So they, he made him work for it a little bit, but he knew that, he like we said he needed to be stopped and so he kept giving them it's like the cop was about to leave and then he would give them a little bit more to keep him intrigued and then he was basically saying like come on catch me come on come on i need to be stopped right right 
and because uh, he he basically like ah dude I got I got dinner I, I right. need to get home man I did <laughs> I'm gonna call right. it a day I'll come back tomorrow no 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 listen <laughs> yeah one of the things he did was the the day of the day that she would that she, this woman was abducted he had an alibi for that entire day except for the time period where she was taken he's like yeah I was at work until about three and it's like she was abducted at four or whatever it's just like <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what I did at that time I just it's weird it's like blank on my mind I don't remember yeah, just, I remember everything else vividly. Gosh, I may have killed someone. I just don't know. I yeah, may have and, been bowling. I, and he, I just don't know. And he even uh, offered up the fact that he had been a sexual offender twice in the past, that he'd been arrested for basically assaults on women and gave that cop that a little bit more, you know, to the point where the cop's like, you know, you want to come in for an interview? <laughs> within <laughs> like You want to come minutes, on down to the station? Right. Within minutes, he had just been <laughs> offering up all these murders that he had done. You want to wear these handcuffs just for fun? I'll let you right, right up front. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and so uh, in 1987, Ross would be convicted of the murders of four of the eight women when he confessed to having killed uh, killed them. It took the jury 86 minutes of deliberations to convict him and only four hours to de- decide on his punishment, which was death. Which uh, he was thrilled about. Yeah, well... I think he was... You think initially, he was right away? I mean, he said he was, but maybe not right away. Initially, I think he was more in shock. I think he actually thought he had a chance at getting off on insanity. He was kind of dumbfounded that they didn't uh, believe him, that he couldn't stop himself from doing these things and stuff. But apparently he doesn't understand. Insanity means you were, you basically could not control yourself and you had no idea what you were doing was wrong. You know, we've talked about it a million times, but like right. what Herbert Mullen does where it was just like walks into a church and just kills the priest like boldly in front of everyone he was if you're attempting to cover up your crimes and you you're showing that you know what you're doing is wrong then you are not going to get off on insanity well i think that's what he was trying to do with that last one i think that's why maybe but that that just wasn't quite brazen enough maybe if you tried to kill her on the side of the road yeah maybe then people would be like whoa what the hell yeah but but you still still took her off the road yep I think he was kind of like, this is a win-win, right? If I don't mm-hmm. get caught, well, then I just got satisfied. If I do get caught, then good. I'll, get st- I'll be stopped and I'll go to jail. Either yeah. way is fine. I'm not going to try not to get caught, but I'm not going to be an idiot either. Exactly. Like we said, make him work for it a little bit. Right. Um, the trial itself faced a lot of criticism in regards to the judge who presided over it. He wasn't seen like clipping his nails during... Uh, the defenses uh, when they brought up like psychiatrists and stuff to try and basically say that he was crazy. The the judge would be sitting up there rolling his eyes. Like he wasn't doing anything on on the record that mm-hmm. would would show malpractice or whatever. But he was basically like putting this image out to the jury that he didn't buy the insanity defense at all. Right. Um, <laughs> which is kind of funny to picture. He's up there rolling his eyes, clipping his fingernails as the guy's going right. on about how this guy's crazy. Um, <laughs> Michael's execution would be the first in Connecticut and the whole of New England since 1960 if it was carried out. The last execution in Connecticut before the state repealed capital punishment in 2012. So he was a very rare occurrence in Connecticut uh, if this thing was carried out at this time. You know, it was obviously scheduled and whatnot. So let's talk about his imprisonment. When he first got to death row, Michael was consumed by anger. He felt that he didn't get a fair trial and that Malchek and Sati uh, were twisting the evidence, those were the prosecutors, to secure a death sentence. Um... The judge was, uh, he felt that the judge was against him and that the jury ignored the evidence. It was very personal feeling of injustice, not a critique of the entire justice system. He began to do legal research to keep busy. Eventually, he was allowed to get books from the law library, but uh, also got lawyers to donate to their outdated books on for death row library and even got the Law Tribune to provide a free subscription. 
After about a year, he realized that his case was not unique and that abuses occur in many capital cases. Seeing this, he started writing anti-death penalty articles, but instead of making Michael feel less persecuted, these activities made him feel hopeless. He had decided that the entire system was broken and corrupt. And that's what I was saying. He was writing mm-hmm. these articles and, and uh, he was actually being paid. They were being published in uh, religious uh, newspapers, magazines, whatnot. And he was making decent right. money doing that. And actually the, the prison cut him off and, and told him he couldn't make money with these articles anymore. So he basically had someone on the outside collect the money and then give it to him. So there was like a middleman to where he wasn't being paid to mm-hmm. like directly by them. So he found the right. way around it. He's no idiot. Right. Um, he slowly spiraled into a deep depression. Prozac helped, but his violent sexual fantasies became much worse. Uh, this is uh, something he talked about. He said, one of the cruel ironies of prison with its lack of physical and mental activity is that the perfect place, it's the perfect place for mental illness to grow stronger. Quote, on the outside, at least I had work on the daily to keep my activity, daily activities to keep my mind busy and drive away the thoughts. When there's nothing to do but sit in an empty cell, the thoughts of raping and murdering became much larger part of my de- my life. The hardest yeah, time no for distractions. me, right? The hardest time for me was in the evening when it came time to relax and go to sleep. I couldn't relax without the sexual imagery invading my mind, without a feeling of an immense compulsion to masturbate. I fought the urge. I could never get to sleep, so daily masturbation just just before bed became the norm. Once I get, gave in and satisfied the urges, I had no problem sleeping. Why didn't you just do that in life, fuckhead? Exactly. You'd still right? be out there, Jesus. Yep. Go to your room, rub one out, watch a horror movie, whatever the hell you got to do. Yeah, don't do walk it. around with a loaded gun all the time. So you make mistakes. Seriously. It's like uh, in, in Something About Mary when he's talking about, oh my God, you went out on a date without flogging the log first? What is the matter with you? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> do you even prep, bro? Right. <laughs> um, so he says, at these times, masturbation would often be painful as I rubbed, the, rubbed it to open sores before Jesus, before this That's first so trial gross. began, Dr. Berlin told Michael about his, uh, his clinic at Johns Hopkins and the success he'd had treating patients suffering from sexual sadism with Depo, Depo Provera. And that's that mm-hmm. uh, basically hormone. It would, it would uh, depress his, uh, his body's production of testosterone to the point where his sexual yeah, no cravings sex should drive, go right? down. Yeah. Right. It's the, the chemical castration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some right. refer to the... Con- it, I think. Yeah, some some refer to the controversial treatment as chemical castration, but Dr. Berlin objected to that term's negative connotations and, it, and considered it misleading. Quote, I prefer talking about medications that suppress sexual appetite, he explained. With an appetite suppressant, it would be easier for you to diet, but not impossible to eat. Dr. Berlin pointed out that many of his patients with approved sex partners are able to continue functioning sexually without the temptation to act and out in harmful ways. When the sex- I bet that depends on the dose, though. Yeah, no you know doubt. I mean? I'm sure. I'm sure uh, Mike Ross was t- was taking a dose to where he had little to no sexual desire. I'm sure. Exactly. We he it's describes his point. experience on these drugs in a minute, and mm-hmm. it's like the more he took, it got to the point where he could just go without masturbation. He didn't think about sex at all. Exactly. Uh, and that's the way he wanted it. Um, mm-hmm. So this doctor continues to talk about it. When the sex drive is diminished, a sexual sadist can control his behavior, even if he has the thoughts about abnormal behavior. It no longer overpowers him. The effectiveness of hormone-suppressing drugs drove California, Florida, Georgia, and a growing number of other states to enact or consider mandatory chemical castration for sex offenders. No hormone treatment, no parole. I'm I'm about that. I'm totally with that. If you're if you're convicted sex offender, if you're convicted pedophile, I am totally about that, man. You don't get parole unless you are put on this shit and you stay on this shit. 
I agree, dude. And and like I've said a million times, if it's tied to your sex drive, if it's tied to to what gets you off, it's not going to change. It's yep. not going to stop. No, no. Not going to no. stop. Um, Depropervera, the most commonly used drug in this type of treatment, is marketed as a female contraceptive because it blocks ovulation. Uh, when one is sexually aroused, the brain secretes endorphins, opiate-like substances that are biochemical stimulants of pleasure. Dr. Berlin speculated that in men, Depropovera blocks opiate receptors, thereby preventing the endorphins from having their normal pleasure-producing effect. But no studies have been done to prove or disprove that theory. Now, that may have changed because this book that, uh, that I'm getting a lot of this from is older. I, haven't, I didn't have the time to look further into more studies about Depropovera and its uses currently, right. but... Um, what we can talk about is Michael's experiences on it. After Michael was placed on death row, Dr. Berlin again suggested that he try Depo-Provera because of the success that he had had with his treatment at St. John's or at uh, Johns Hopkins Clinic. By this point, Michael was still reluctant but also desperate. During the few months, he didn't notice any effects, so the dosage would increase twice until it got to 700 milligrams per week. Michael said that shortly thereafter, quote, I noticed a decrease in my need for masturbation and less desire to engage in sexual fantasizing. He said the changes were gradual, but at some point after receiving 700 milligrams per week, the incessant urges to masturbate began to subside. As his need to masturbate declined, so did the violent sexual fantasies in his head. By the time his testosterone levels dropped below 50, he masturbated only once a day. Below 35, he could abstain for a couple of weeks, and at 20 or less, he reported that he had, quote, essentially no sexual urges at all and did not masturbate at all but i wonder uh, how long that would last even at that high dosage because like it with every other medication your body becomes accustomed to it exactly and that dosage is not enough yeah and i think i think he knew that was inevitable yeah um he said quote it cleared my mind and allowed me to be quiet he explained before the depravivera i had always ha- be actively doing something or mentally or obsessive sexual fantasies would pop up what Depo Brevera did was greatly lessen the control the monster had over me. It didn't take so much effort to force the fantasies out of my mind. I could fight the compulsive urge yet still be able to go to sleep. I was in control. He, quote, the monster, was still in my mind but vanished to the back. Michael's whole mm-hmm. world changed. He said for the first time in years he could watch a movie without fantasizing about raping and murdering one of the female actresses. Quote, I could just lie there and do nothing and let my mind wander without drifting into some sexual murder fantasy. I developed extensive non-sexual fantasy words uh, worlds where I could escape for hours on end and not have guilt to deal with afterwards. Fascinating. Yeah, he talked about that, how he would just put his headphones on and listen to music and just, like, meditate. Right. Just lay on his bed for hours and go somewhere else. Yeah. That's, Do you ever think about that? Like, how necessary is sex drive within us? I, I mean, I know it's it's a it's something that to do with evolution and like we wouldn't all be here without it. That sex drive that drives us together and whatnot, but it's also can be depending on your, probably your testosterone levels as a man, it can be overwhelming. Like what was that movie? Uh, I think it was called Don John with uh, my, Joseph Gordon Levitt, where he's like a, a young dude who's got a family and faith and all that stuff. But then he's also got this like underlying porn addiction. He's just every, he can't wait to get home to log on to Pornhub and, it, it, oh, it makes no, you wonder, like, if you could, if you could turn that down, ninety yeah. percent of the time you would want to, right? Like, it's just more of a distraction, a nuisance than anything. Ninety percent of the time, I think and if it gets to that point, yes, I think it can be a motivator for yeah. some men if it's used correctly. That kind of energy, if it, if you can focus it, it can be a real motivator. But I think, yeah, at that point, I think it's it's too much. It's out of control. Yeah. Well, he found this uh, Depo Vivera to be very 
helpful to quiet the noise in his head and then help him focus on more productive things and get rid of the, the violent uh, tendencies. Right. And during the uh, next 18 years that he spent on death row, Ross met Susan Powers from Oklahoma and the two were engaged to be married. She ended the relationship in 2003, but continued to visit Ross up until his execution. Um, he became uh, yet again a devout Catholic while in prison and would pray Why to not? the rosary daily. <laughs> of course. Why not? And he was also accomplished at translating uh, Braille and helping troubled inmates. So I thought the some... Braille thing was interesting. Right? That's kind of cool. Guess... He was transcribing Braille or whatever to... Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Uh, in the final year of his life, Ross, who had always been opposed to the death penalty, said he no longer objected to his own execution, according to Cornell graduate Catherine Yeager. Ross believed that it, that he had been, quote, forgiven by God and that he would be going to a, quote, better place once he was executed. She also said that Ross did not wish for the victim's families to suffer any more pain. Now, the book winded, uh, you know, his mentality behind that. And ultimately, he admitted to the author of this book that this was state-assisted suicide, that, you know, he put out there in the world that he was doing this for the good of the families. But we talked about how he viewed those victims as faceless people, like they were... right just fulfilling his fantasies. He didn't the only care. Reason, the only reason he knew what they even looked like was because of the newspaper articles and the pictures yeah. that were posted of them. He he yeah. had no recollection. He couldn't pick them out of a lineup 12 minutes, you know, 20 minutes later. Yeah, and so for him, for us to believe that he cares so much about putting the families through more grief, I, I don't buy that. I think this was him saving face. He hated the world viewing him as this monster. Uh, he, like we said, his biggest fear was the image he would, this was actually keep him up at night. He would have nightmares about this, about him being executed and hordes of people outside the prison celebrating while he was being killed. He, he just hated the idea of that. And this was his way of saving face and also finally getting, basically having the courage to commit suicide without actually having the courage to do it, being forced to do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then ending right. his, he didn't want to be on earth anymore. He he did have some shame about who he was and what he'd become and all that stuff. And probably the, you know what, the reality probably sunk in more once he was on Depa Provera and those, those urges went away. Cause it was just like, what the hell did I do now yep. that I'm not feeling the, the, the same thing that I felt before. Oh, there's, dude. there's no motivation anymore to do that, but yet I know I did that. That could have, yeah, that could have been torture in itself. Just being like, shit, what if I'd have just had this? <laughs> you mean yep. I could have quieted all of this, mm -hmm. this quote unquote monster inside of me or whatever. Yeah, I could have quieted this and lived a normal life. Yep. Maybe had he gone mm. and gotten some help, who knows what could have been done? Maybe he could have been put mm -hmm. on that treatment. That's the, that's my point. Is like if you know you have these dangerous, violent thoughts, you got to yep. go tell somebody. You know, you can't allow yourself to say, "Oh, I'll, I'll be fine. I won't act on it." Because look how many times he did that. Where he did act on it, then afterwards he said, "Okay, I'll never do that again." And then he did it again. Even after, yeah, even after he's already acted on it multiple times, he's still yep. kidding himself, saying that it will never happen again. Yep. So let's talk about his execution. He would end up being executed by lethal injection on May 13th, 2005 at 2.25 a.m. Kind of weird how they do it in the middle of the night, right? It almost says that they have like some shame to it. Yeah, you know? I know, right? Um, at Osborne Correctional Institution in Somers, Connecticut. His remains were buried at the Benedict uh, Grange Cemetery in Redding, Connecticut. Uh, we always like to talk about the uh, the last meal and the last words mm -hmm. and all that. His were as boring as it gets. Um he basically uh, did not request a special last meal before facing his execution, thereby dining on the regular prison meal of the day, which was turkey a la king with rice, mixed vegetables, white bread, fruit, and a beverage. That doesn't sound uh, bad, really. No, it doesn't sound terrible, right? I mean, it's no. prison food, so it's probably is the crappiest version of that that you could imagine. No, yeah, um, maybe. When asked if he would uh, make a last statement, he said without opening his eyes, no, thank you. 
Like I was even like <laughs> courteous at the end, like, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. <clears throat> Kill me now. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> Uh, after the execution, well, Dr. Stuart Gracian, a psychiatrist who had argue, uh, argued that Ross was not competent to waive appeal, received a letter from Ross dated May 10th, 2005, which read, quote, check and mate, you never had a chance. <laughs> so the person that was trying to get, <laughs> get him to not be executed, yeah, uh, he insisted that he be executed and he had to have some last words. He had to get the last word in there. And uh, that was kind of well, interesting. That, yeah, that's kind of interesting. That's, that's more interesting than the no thank you for sure. For sure, so we'll, we'll we'll call those his his technical last words, right? Exactly, the last words. <laughs> yeah, and mate. Yep. Nice. So that's old Mike Ross, huh? Ah, uh, Mike Michael Bruce Ross, one of the serial killer you never knew, and now you do. I'm sure most ninety percent of our audience has never heard of this guy, and uh, there like, was plenty of things that were interesting about him. Mm-hmm. He's like Bundy meets Kemper. Yeah, Kemper Light, Bundy Light, whatever you want to call it. You know, one thing I did a little differently with this one, and the book helped a lot with that, um, mm-hmm. was was dive more into the victims. I feel like a lot of like a lot of our past episodes, we just say the name, we say how they were killed, and that's it. Like yeah. we, I like in this in this episode how we went. You know, each victim, we we really talked about who they were, had quotes from their family members. I think we should look into doing that more in future cases that give a little bit more levity, a little bit more meaning to their to their uh, killing, to their to their unfortunate death. You know. I agree, hundred percent. We always try to try to show you know compassion when dealing mm-hmm. with the victim, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there a lot of times there is a little more information about the victim. Yeah, you can find um, it, and there's no need to not put it in there. It should that's be in right. There. That's right. To to if nothing else, carry on their memory. Right. Yep. All right. Yeah. So let's get into some. Uh, oh my Gaia. Oh my Gaia. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural, paraben, and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guess what? You don't have to leave your quarantined house to get some. It can be shipped straight to you. And guys, there's tons of scents to choose from. There's vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, one of my favorites, I'm wearing it today, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside. Um, and we have our very own scent through Oh My Gaia called True Crime Pine. And guys, you can get any of these scents with fi- for 15% off your first order with using the word creeper, C-R-E-E-P-E-R. Because you are a true crime guys listener. That's the word creeper for 15% off at ohmygaia.com or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. Now that's O H M Y G A I A dot com. No better Smell time to support a small house. business like Oh My Gaia. Definitely. That's right. Help help out the uh, small business and also help out our show by supporting Oh My Gaia. Been, been with us since the get go, pretty much. An awesome sponsor yeah. and awesome product, more importantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's products that we use ourselves. My family yep. uses it. Oh, 100%. My whole family uses it too. Oh, yeah. All right. I want to thank the people that have gone and taken the time to write and review our show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Um, awesome. Since, since the last episode, we got Blaub74 in Canada. I'm not sure if I pronounced nice. that right. B-L-O-U-B-74, Blaub. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sullivan4485 in the U.S., Said we're the best out there. Five stars. Thank you. Gray one 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 nine three in the US said one of my favorites. These guys are great. Thank you. Stevie two X in Great Britain said uh listen to a few crime podcasts. These guys are the best. A bit of humor along the way makes it a great listen. 
in good old England. So thank you, Stevie <laughs> or Stevie Two X. Uh, sweet honey, sweet honey Z twenty eight in the U.S. said love you guys. Uh, it's a male male person, male carrier. Oh, okay, uh, nice. I'm sure they yeah out there they delivering spend a lot of mail. time with them. Yeah, I wonder sure. if you've delivered some of our stickers before, sweet honey, because I just sent out some gold stickers to everybody all over the world. So, oh, chances Crazy. are pretty good. Yep, <laughs> uh, Squally Girl in the U.S. said, "Great show, thank you. Keep creeping." Uh, Mara Ba uh, in the mm-hmm. U.S. said, uh, five stars." Uh, let's see, Picante in the U.S. Uh, great podcast, but where'd you guys go? We didn't record last week uh, for the for the freeloaders out there because we were busy doing a Patreon exclusive on the Tiger King people. On the Tiger fucking King. Yeah. Are you yes. not entertained? Are you not? <laughs> yes. If you don't know, if you're new to the show, we put out three free episodes a month, and the fourth week every month is a Patreon exclusive episode that for the foreseeable future will never be released on the free platform. So right. there's always that extra content that's there. And a lot of times we pick the biggest cases for Patreon. We've done usually the biggest heavy hitters like Gacy and Dom, or some of them we have put out there for you for the free Lotus, mm-hmm. but um, there's so much on there. So many episodes. If you, if you haven't signed up for Patreon that you haven't heard and so much to go on there and binge, and there's no better time right now being in quarantine, two that's bucks right. a month gets you access to all of that. Patreon.com slash true crime guys. Um, so definitely go check that out two bucks and you'll get a whole lot of entertainment. Um, and one last person to thank for the iTunes reviews is Stacia in Texas. Uh, I said, love the podcast. You guys get me through these long 12 hour night shifts. Appreciate the, nice. uh, the long episodes and the way you relay the information. Uh, so thank you, Stacia, 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 whatever. <laughs> <In Texas. laughs> well, thank you either way. <laughs> no mess with Texas. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's awesome guys. Yep. We appreciate that very much. It's a great way to help the show. If you're if you're unable to be a patron or you're unable to make a donation, truecrimeguys.com, which you can for stickers, mm-hmm. um, then yeah, leaving a review is the best, absolute best way to to, uh, to help the show. We're about to hit 1,500. By the time this is released, I think we'll be there. We're at 1,496 today, I think, when I checked. Pretty crazy. Pretty iTunes humbling. reviews? Yep. On That's iTunes awesome. Reviews. Yeah. That's and, awesome. And, uh, and over we, 3 and, million downloads. Yeah, and we had just noticed that today. Man. So we, we made a post when we hit a million a while back, and I hadn't mm-hmm. checked. I don't, I'm not one of those people that just is obsessed with downloads or whatever. I feel like you just keep putting out a good product, just and the people going, will come, dude. and you can't just sit there and obsess over the you know the the numbers no, and whatnot and go crazy That's every right. time it's down or up. It's gonna you know just just keep putting a good product out there. Anyways, so I just happened to look today, and it was at three million. So I, I we skipped two million. I don't even remember seeing that happen. And I was just like, dang, oh, that's cool. Hey man, snowball's picking up speed, and that's that's huge. Thanks to a lot of you guys who are spreading the word, or yep. listening, telling your friends, sharing us on social media. We really appreciate that. Yeah, um, yeah. At True Crime Guys on all social media: Twitter, yep. Instagram, Facebook, and uh, and guys, if you will check out our other show. By True Crime 100%. Guys Productions called Strange and Unexplained. The first episode was just released uh, this past Monday, and new episodes will be released on Mondays. So new yep. True Crime Guys on Wednesdays, new Strange and Unexplained on Mondays. So, so. If, if, if you've wondered why we don't go into a lot of uh, unsolved cases and whatnot, this will fill that, that craving you have for yes. hearing... Hearing Michael talk about an unsolved case or just some mysterious things that have happened, you know, it may not even right. be a missing persons case, but it could be anything. Like you talked about eugenics, right, in your second episode. That's right. So it just That's could right. Be, it could be all over the place. And that episode is available on the Strange and Unexplained Patreon right now. 
So you can do yeah. patreon.com slash S&U podcast and sign up for that Patreon as well. There is the first episode on Asia Degree is, was obviously released early there. There's also an episode on eugenics, which will be episode number two. And then there's a short episode that I just put up yesterday um, actually on Amber Hagerman, who was the girl who was mis- who was kidnapped and killed. And because of her case came the Amber Alerts, which oh, we still wow. get today. Yeah, so I put up a short on there. It's, it's, a, it's a short case. It's unsolved as well. But um, it's definitely worth checking out. It's a very interesting case. I think it's a, a, a historical case that people should know about. Yeah, and the main so. center point of this show, if you're wondering is Michael, uh, but also I am, I am behind the scenes playing a role and, I, and you may hear yes. my voice on it from time to time and you may hear you my will. thoughts on these cases and I have insight into the next one and it is a damn interesting missing persons type of case, yes. man. That is very, <laughs> yes, very it is. Intriguing. A twisted, tangled web. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So it's going to be a so. lot of fun. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, <laughs> that's about it for us. We'll see you next week for another free episode and uh, what else we got to say? Keep creeping. Keep creeping, guys. Sit down, let us talk, catch it. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making better charming.